Okay, the next question comes from Lawrence. Lawrence, go ahead. Hey, Tom. Happy New Year. Hi, Lawrence. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. All right. My question was, um, when, in, when interacting with other sentient beings in PMR reality, I find that what I think inside my mind or consciousness affects what happens in PMR. Is there a science to this? Whenever I begin to talk to myself or use judgment while interacting with someone, whether in front of them or on the phone, I realize this affects the probability of the conversation. Can people hear or understand your thoughts non-locally or are they getting some other type of reading? Okay, well, let's just deal with one first. And uh, the answer to that is yes, there is some science behind it. And, and what it is is that all of us are interconnected. All individuated units of consciousness, including your cat, are all connected. So what we have to do is basically just tune in on that connection. You know, and in other words, it's like, uh, it's like the internet. We have all these internet sites out there. There's probably a couple of billion internet sites out there and they're all available to us. But what we have to do is type in the URL and hit enter and then we're connected. Well, in the larger conscious system, all we do is have to have an intent. We just have to have a connection of some sort. Now that connection might be one of positive feeling or it might be one of fear. You know, you can get connected to something or to some other being all sorts of ways. Fear is a connection. Um, caring is a connection. Love is a connection. So you got lots of lots of connections. Or uh, you know, there may be some other sort of connection you have. And if you have this connection, then you can you can communicate. You make the connection. So yes, you're talking to somebody on the phone, and they hear your words. But at the same time, they're also getting your thoughts because they're paying attention to you. They're listening to your communications. So they do get your thoughts. Very intuitive people live this way. Very right brain intuitive people, they know what you're thinking. They even know what, you know, you're, you're eating that hamburger and that dill pickle and they know just what that tastes like to you because they intuit all these things. Well, they're just getting that data from you and out of the database. Uh, they get all sorts of data that they can't explain and there's really no, you know, in their mind, there's no logic to it, but there is a logic to it. We're all connected because we're all consciousness. And secondly, as you say, your intent changes the probability. As you have intents, probabilities change. As other people have intents, probabilities change. We're all in here with our intents, and some of us are pushing to the right while others are pushing to the left with the same on the same object, you know, with intents. So it all kind of works out however it does, and things happen probability goes up or down. So yes, you do affect other people. You affect other people in ways that you don't imagine. You affect other people without ever having to talk to them. And uh, you know that's why when you grow up, as you lower your entropy and you become more and more love, then you have an effect on people. Without having to say a word, you just have an effect on people. They just pick that up and it helps them. It helps pull them up. Just like in, the opposite of that is just like in the mob, when a bunch of angry people get together, they don't all have to sit down and discuss how angry they are. They just feel it from each other and it makes them angrier. So it drags them down. 
lowers their quality. Whereas if you're around somebody who's full of love, it pulls you up. It uh, you know decreases your entropy. You do affect people. Uh, you know the way that uh, you know these people who do um, you know, voodoo kinds of things, where they'll put a curse on somebody or they will uh, use their mind to make somebody ill. The connection they have with that person is usually fear, because before they do any of that, typically. They send a letter, they make a call, they do things to frighten the person. I'm gonna get you, you know, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Now, once they've created that fear, that's their connection. Now you see, now they can work and connect to that person's energy through that fear. So connections can be used for good or for bad. That's why the best thing you can do to help raise the quality of consciousness in the world is raise your own quality of consciousness, because that is more effective than going around lecturing people on, on growing up. So that's yeah. So that first part of your question is indeed, you know, your experience is accurate. You do affect other people and other people affect you. Another example of this is uh, uh, things we call uh, uh, fads or crazes, you know, it works the same way. Why on earth do, you know, 100,000 people get up at four o'clock in the morning to stand in the line of a shop to buy a Beanie Baby? You know, it makes no sense. Well, that was what, 10 or 20 years ago when Beanie Babies were all the rage. You know, it makes no sense. Why are these people doing that? You know, it's just a little piece of cloth with some, you know, stuff inside of it. It's, it's not a, particularly even, you know, all that attractive or wonderful or anything else, but you, everybody has to have one bad enough to get up in the middle of the night and go stand in line. Why? Well, it's because we communicate with each other and people get excited about it. And that excitement makes other people excited, which then now you got two people who are excited and they make another person excited. And pretty soon you get enough press and you get enough pictures and you get enough stuff that excitement spreads. And now you have a fad. You have something that everybody wants to do or get involved in or be a part of, and there's really no rationality behind it at all, other than the fact that it's traveled mind to mind, and you know that's you know that's basically the way our economy works too. You know, economists will tell you that 90% of what drives an economy is the attitudes of the people. It's how the people feel. Do they feel hopeful or do they not feel hopeful? If they feel hopeful, well, they go out and make investments. If they don't, well, they cash their investments in and go, you know, hunker down someplace. And economies run on attitude more than anything else. It's a very major thing, and it affects all of us. We all are connected with with everybody else, and uh, we don't realize it. We don't, you know, think about it, but it affects us as well as we affect others. So let's see, now there was a second part of your question that uh, we can get there. All right, um, after one dies from PMR and enters the afterlife, what would be the best evidence for one to know that they have now dropped the body and in the afterlife? Is there a way for someone to prepare for this transition so that they can continue their growth if they already have in mind what they wanna do in their future birth? Well, the first question, uh, you know, what's the best evidence to know whether a person has got left the body? Of course, the best evidence is are they dead or not? 
but I can see that you probably are thinking of something in between. You have somebody in a coma, perhaps, and they are, uh, you know, they don't respond. They just lie there. They're completely uh, non-responsive, but the body is still still going. Is it possible for them to have already left and gone on to what you're calling the afterlife while their body still uh, is lying there being resuscitated mechanically, being fed mechanically, and so on? And the answer is yes. Sometimes people are gone, they've left their bodies, and the body is still chugging along uh, on life support systems. So that does happen sometimes. And is there a way for you to prepare for the transition? Well, sure. The more you understand how reality works and that how this transition works and so on, the less hand-holding, the less time it's going to take you to, uh, you know, to get on with it, to accommodate uh, the transition. It becomes a very simple, very quick thing and uh, almost like there is no transition. It's a, it's a, it uh, becomes a very trivial event. And uh, can you have something in mind that you would like to do the next time? You can, absolutely. There is no coercion in this. No one tells you you are going to have to incarnate and here's the person that you're going to, and here's, you know, your situation and so on, and you have no choice, you know, go do it. That doesn't happen. You have free will always. You're always asked, what would you like to do? What would you need to work on? How would you like to do this? Any particular situation you have in mind. And if you have one, then you can talk about it. And if the individuals you're talking to think it's a really bad idea that it's, that'll likely uh, cause you to uh, de-evolve rather than evolve, they'll probably say, we don't think that's a good idea, and they'll maybe talk you out of it, or maybe they won't. Maybe you'll say, no, nah, that's what I want to do. I know this is just right for me, and I want to do it anyway. And that's what you'll get because you have free will, and you get to make your choices. And then you get to deal with whatever the results are because that's how you learn. So you see, free will can't help you learn anything. You know, if if uh, you know, somebody else makes a choice for you, you can't learn anything. That's why you have to have free will. Only free will enables you to learn something. If somebody says, do this, well, you do it. And it works out good or it works out bad. What have you learned? Not too much because it wasn't your choice. You didn't learn how to make better choices because you didn't make the choice in the first place. And that's really what we're learning is how to make better choices. So you need free will to do that. So yes, you can, you can kind of make up your own, your own plan and uh, you can stick to it, whether it's a good plan or a bad plan, if you want to, but you will get advice. And typically it's wise to listen carefully to the advice because the advisors have a lot of experience of what works and what doesn't because they've seen millions and millions of people go through and the kind of things they do. But you are an individual. You're not necessarily going to do just what other people did. So if there's something you really want to do, stick to it. Do it and you'll learn from it. Turns out bad, well, you'll learn an important lesson there. You see, it's not that important. It's what you learn from it is what's important. So, yes, you have that kind of uh, ability to... to uh, Stick with it. And let's see, was there one more section? Uh, was there a part three to this? Yes, there was one, yes. okay. one last one. I was, uh, and that one was, thank you for the answer. Um, the last one was, after one passes from PMR into the afterlife, is there intellectual memories 
if their intellectual memories are erased after death, how do some people reincarnate with memories of their past life? For example, children knowing what their names were and where they lived at in their past life. Is, is there a way we can retain a portion of our significant memories, the stuff that uh, meant the most to us? In the, so um, well, when I talk about things, you know, I, I tell people that when you, when you uh, die, you end up in another reality frame. And in this reality frame, your past memories just kind of dis dissipate like a dream. Okay. But when I say that, I'm not saying that that is something that must happen to every individual. I'm just saying that's what typically happens. That's the, that's the, the great majority of people. That's the way it works. That's the normal. That's the typical process. Now, there may be exceptions to that process. And because this is a digital system, there's probably exceptions to every process. You know, it's, uh, everything's very individual. You know, you're an individual and you have choices. And there's probably some exceptions in the margin in just about every process. Some children do come in and we, we talk about children because children really don't have an opportunity to go study, um, you know, World War One fighter pilots or something. So when they say, oh, I was a fighter pilot in World War One and my name was Joe and here's the kind of plane and I got shot down on such and such a day over such and such a place. That's a lot of specific information for a five year old to tell you who really doesn't have access to any of that information. You see, so it becomes very credible when a little child does that, because we know they didn't go out, read that in the book and then come back and try to make up the story. Because that's that you don't do that when you're five years old. You don't have that ability to read, you know, you don't have, you just can't do that. So any case, um, that's why the, the children that do this make such a big splash because it's, it's very credible. And yes, that does happen sometimes, but why does that happen in their case? And it doesn't happen in other people's case. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the larger consciousness system would like to stir the pot a little bit, would like to open a bunch of people's minds. So they give this little child this particular information and they not only give it to him so he knows it, but they encourage him to tell other people about it. Hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, I did this and so on. And they also may encourage the parents to go check it out, not just blow it off. You see, so in that case, now that gets told, it gets a story, it makes the press, you know, it's written, it's written up and uh, people come out. Psychologists come out to study the child and ask them more details and, you know, the, the investigation ensues and so on. And that just is a way to help raise the general level of consciousness because it's telling people, look at this strange event. How can you explain this? And the answer is you can't explain it under ordinary ideas of the way reality works. Well, what does that mean? That means that reality isn't like the ordinary ways that you think reality works. It's bigger than that. And when people get that idea, they go, oh, wow, I better go look this up. You know, I need to study this. I need to find out more about it. So it gives people incentive to go out and do things. So sometimes you get that for that reason. It's just a plant, if you will, to stir people up a little bit and get them going out being seekers of a bigger picture where otherwise they never even think about it. So we constantly have these things going on. So that's one reason, probably the primary reason why a child would do that. Now, there are other reasons, too. Sometimes people have such a strong, what would we call it, strong passion or strong um, 
obsession with something. It was such a strong event in their life that some vague memory of it comes, you know, comes through. Some some facet of it comes through. And sometimes that will be maybe a phobia or a fear of something, you know, that has its origins in a past life. And they still bring it into this life. Um, they're bringing in feelings then at the, at the being level, not really so much information at the intellectual level, but that happens too. But if there's something that's very passionately they were involved in, then they may come here and be very unusual people, like take, uh, you know, a, a Mozart or a Beethoven, right, who were playing the piano at five years old and composing by, you know, seven or eight and that kind of thing. And then you have other children, you know, 100 years later, who are doing the same thing. Matter of fact, at five years old, they're playing Beethoven, you know, and it just comes really natural to them. And you say, well, what's going on here? You see, is there a connection? You know, this, this little person is way out ahead of where normal little people would be. Well, there may be a passion there. There may be a, a, a very strong connection that then will bleed through into the next and into the next. You see, this possibility. So again, there's multiple ways that can explain various various things. That uh, does that answer your, your your question? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, the next question comes again from Ingeborg. Ingeborg, go ahead. Yes, yes. Thank you. You, you mentioned uh, 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 people uh, staying in coma, so I did it. And this is my question about this near-death near experience. When I was 27 years old, I had a near-death experience after a severe car accident in northern Italy. Besides numerous injuries only in the upper part of the body, I had an extremely severe brain contusion and fell into coma for about two weeks. My body nearly died. In the moment the car accident happened, Instantaneously, I found myself as a bright spark in an absolute endless black nothing. Immediately, I knew, I knew for sure this is the I am and I am immortal. I stayed in this condition for a while, then I got bored and then I said, where is the show? Instantaneously, a marvelous wooden renaissance theater popped up. I stayed alone in this theater for a long time, the two weeks, I would say, unable to wake up. After two weeks, I was woken up by my mother. She used a technique based on a theory of Immanuel Velikovsky on the energetics of psyche and the physical existence of thoughts. So this process took about four hours. She she used this technique four hours, and then I was uh, then I could uh, wake up. By chance, I could identify the wooden theater about five years later. It was the Teatro Farnese in Parma, about 170 miles away from the location of the accident and the hospital I was lying. Can you please explain what this space of black nothing was? What was my condition as a spark? Did I create this theater hologram? Did I create this theater hologram? What is the difference to the PMR hologram? 
And what do you think about the relation of my experience to PMR? I mean, the Teatro Farnese really exists, and the distance of my location where I uh, where the accident happened and the theater is. Thank you. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, you know, part of the answer is very similar to what I gave you before. And that is, there's, there's lots of reasons why this may have happened the way it happened. It's not necessarily just one, uh, one answer to each one of these questions. And that's the right answer to that question. Each of these questions can have several answers. Okay, um, you know, what was the space of nothing? Well, you had an accident. Um, you lost your connection with PMR, with the physical world. But of course, you're still consciousness, and obviously your body, uh, you know, was not done yet because it was able to be resuscitated. So you were unable to use your consciousness was unable to use the avatar at that point because of the accident. So the constraints that were created by the, you know, by the repercussions of the accident made your avatar inaccessible to your consciousness. But your consciousness is still there. Your consciousness isn't your body. Your consciousness wasn't in wasn't in the car. Your consciousness is still going. Now there was a probability, and I suspect a very strong one, that you would recover. And the system probably saw that probability and said, "Well, you know, in in a week or so, you know, this person's going to uh, be able to. Uh, uh, the constraints will." reside you know the constraints will go away some and the consciousness will be able to re um use the the avatar will be able to interact with the avatar again uh, so the avatar will heal uh, because of the rule set so with that being the probability then you had time here you were with consciousness and no avatar to to uh, operate so you had some spare time on your hand as consciousness so what are we going to do with this spare time and the black nothing was probably you're just awareness of you know of yourself it's like floating in you know a speck of consciousness floating in the void that kind of, a, of an awareness is what i call point consciousness so at that time you're just a point consciousness and as point consciousness, that's a pleasant place to stay for a while, but eventually you can get a little bored there and you begin to have intents. You begin to think things. Uh, like one of the thoughts you had was, where, you know, where's the show? And anything you do then, anything you think, is a way that the system can provide you with content, with a data stream, with something that will be uh, evidential for you, something that will be important, something you can use to grow on. So it happened to show you a picture of this uh, particular theater. Um, why that theater? Well, why not? You know, you look for a show, so it needed a theater. And why not this one? Because you would be able to one day identify it, and then suddenly that would pull things together in your mind and say, hmm, that wasn't just me, the body that got knocked unconscious and then woke up. There was something bigger than that going on. And all of these things kind of come together to help you understand your existence in this larger reality. So it's all part of the, you know, the way that you kind of became a seeker, became looking for, for bigger pictures and uh, 
knowing that there was a bigger reality. So that's why that particular theater would have been a good choice for the system because it was one close enough to you that you were very likely to look at it and say, hey, that's the theater I was in, you see? Otherwise, if you never identified it, if it was some theater in Boston, Massachusetts, you may never have ever seen that and never identified it, never seen it in a picture. And then it would have just been the strange thing that, that uh, was always, you know, there, but strange, but that you actually saw it and could identify it made the whole thing more real somehow, you see. So that's why you would have seen that particular, that particular theater like that. Um, so the black nothing was just point consciousness. Uh, your condition as a spark, well, that's, that's you as the point of consciousness in the void. You are that spark. That's your consciousness. And uh, oftentimes when people are floating in the void as point consciousness, they see themselves as a point of light in the, in the void. So I suspect that you are that spark. That's your individuated unit of consciousness. Uh, that was you. Then you asked the question, you got the theater. Uh, did you create it? I wouldn't say that you created it. I suspect it was more likely it was given to you. Um, um, let's see, I don't know. Any, any other questions you have about that that I've, that I've kind of missed? I've tried to hit all your questions there, but I don't know if I got them all. Anything still remaining? The, the last part of my question, uh, the relation between what I dreamed in non-PMR non and uh, the, the affinity, well, no, no the, the, you know, the 170 miles. <laughs> Why 170 miles? I don't... Um. Well, as I said, the 170 miles is something that was close enough that you were very likely to mm -hmm. see it. You'd very likely have the connection, which would make the whole experience more valid, more real in your mind. So having one that you would never see wouldn't be such a good idea. Having one that was close enough to you that it would be hard for you to miss it. You know, one day you're going to see this thing. It's something that uh, you'll either see in a picture or, you know, in a history book or that you could go see it just because you visited it. So it's just the probability that you would see it. And in fact, you may, you maybe even had been nudged to see it, to discover it. You may have, I don't know, did you, did you discover it on a, on a picture or did you actually go there and see it? Uh, however oh. you... Uh, by chance, I, I, I found a, um, you know, a, a, a Zeitschrift, uh, uh, you know, sort of newspaper, just by chance. I never saw it before. I didn't know about it. I saw a newspaper and there was a picture in it. <laughs> so, and this is why I found it. Yeah. And that you may have, what I'm saying is that you may have been nudged to pick up that particular newspaper yes. on that particular day and look at it. You see, that may have been a nudge that you got. Oh, look, there's a newspaper. I think I have an urge to go look and see what's going on today. Uh, what about this page? Ah, there it was. So it may have just been part of, of uh, the reason you got it is so that you could have a higher probability of actually making the connection that it was a real theater someplace in PMR, which then makes it a much bigger, oh, wow, than if you couldn't, you couldn't uh, place it. In fact, this was the reason uh, uh, that I started to to do research on it because you know uh, before uh, people said you you have a dream you had a dream it's just a dream so huh? and um, 
I, I didn't uh, talk uh, a lot about it because you know it was uh, in 1987 and near-death experiences, so nobody knew about it. Or in, in my surroundings, nobody knew uh, uh, what this might have been. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was a it was a, a an experience of consciousness. Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you so much for your answers. Really, I appreciate it very much because they helped me a lot. <laughs> uh, this, the process of growing is even faster then. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's much easier to play the game if you know how the game's supposed to be played, right? If you, if you understand it. Okay, the next question comes from an MBT forum member and it's about accessing dreams. From personal experience, I've come to the conclusion that all dreams are remembered and stored, not just the ones we have right before we wake up. But they are very hard to access for average people because they are exclusively connected to non-physical memories. Sometimes I wake up from a dream and for a short period, the memory of the dream I just woke up from allows me to remember a numerous amount of dreams I never knew I had. Then 10 seconds later, I don't remember what I just remembered. Sometimes I have whole stories and series of dreams spanning over physical matter reality years. What am I accessing here? Is my brain living another life in secrecy and sweeping the memories under the rug? Or is it random slash accidental fragments of lives and experiences of my individuated unit of consciousness being interpreted as dreams by me? Okay, well, I think the, the fundamental thing here to uh, understand is that uh, your consciousness uh, does a whole lot more than just make choices for you, okay, here in PMR. Now, we, we kind of give it that role, okay? Our, our consciousness makes our choices, um, the avatar's choices here in PMR, but it does more than that. Of course, dreams are more than that, but besides dreams, your, your consciousness also integrates your experience data. Okay, it's another job for the consciousness besides making choices for the avatar, for your avatar, is it integrates experience data. All the experience data you make isn't just, you know, a, a, a piece of data that isn't connected to any other piece of data. You have to take all of that data as a whole and integrate it. What can I learn from all of this data? because it's often hundreds of pieces of data that collect before the aha moment comes and you put them all together to learn something. So that's another job that the consciousness is busy doing that you're never, you're not aware of. This isn't something that takes place in your, uh, in your intellect. It just happens. And then uh, you, you interact in NPMR. Okay. You interact in several ways. You, you uh, receive data, you receive data from other beings from other uh, individuated units of consciousness and you receive data from databases and this is something you don't necessarily intellectually do either you just have a thought you have an intent most people's minds are very unruly they uh, you know if you're not if you don't do a lot of meditation your mind tends to be a, very unruly and if you do a lot of meditation your mind still tends to be a bit unruly it's just the way our minds are they jump from thing to thing and, and idea to idea and feelings and all this stuff is kind of jumping around in our mind. Uh, particularly if we're not in a meditation state. 
And when it does, it may have a thought that connects us to the database. Well, I wonder about such and such. Well, that just may be an intent that only lasts for you know a tenth of a second. But sure enough, here comes some data down answering that question that your, your intellect didn't ask it. It just kind of drifts through your mind. And now you get this information back from it. So you get, you receive information. Sometimes the system wants to talk to you. Sometimes the system gives you hints, gives you nudges. Oh, pick up the paper and look at the picture, you know, on page three. Or it, uh, it may want to uh, uh, just give you some data that's important for you. So you're busy doing lots of things. Um, you're sending information. You're, you're sending information to other individuated units of consciousness that you're thinking about or that cross your mind. You are uh, interacting again with the LCS, both sending and receiving. So all these things are happening without your intellect being aware of any of it. So you are a multidimensional person. It's not just you and your intellect. It's not just your consciousness working through your intellect to make your, your conscious choices. There's a lot of other stuff going on at processes at the same time. So that's the kind of the fundamental answer. So when you have all these, when you have a whole bunch of dreams, like you just wake up from a dream and now suddenly you get this download of all sorts of information. Okay, what is that? Well, that may be stuff that's been going on in your consciousness for you know, a long time. It could be going on for days and it suddenly is making sense or connecting and it just gets downloaded. Or maybe you have a thought about dreaming and you're, and without really thinking about it, your intent says, Gee, that was a good dream. I wonder if I've had any like those. And it's not that your intellect says that. It's just this little thought that just drifts through your mind for a fraction of a second. But there it is. It's not your intellect. It's below the level of the intellect, but you get the answer. And you'll get all kinds of other dreams. Maybe it'll come down in a, in a you know, in, in like a, a waterfall or a torrent will come down and you'll get them all at once. Why? Because you had this little intent that you really didn't know you had because you're thinking about dreams and that was an interesting dream. And some part of you wonders about other dreams you might've had similar or other dreams you might've had that were different. And just that wonder can connect to the database and get you a, you know, get you a download of information. So we often get these, these downloads of information which we often call intuition, if we're not in a dreaming mode. If we're in the middle of dream or just woke up from a dream, then we call them something else. But if we've been awake, we call them our intuition, where we think a thought, not necessarily again from the intellect, but, a, but an intent flashes through our mind and we'll get downloads from it. That's how sometimes when you're driving home, you get the intuition. Well, instead of going home the usual way, I'm going to go home this other way. I'm going to take a left turn here and, and instead of going straight. And I'm going to go home. It's a little longer, but I feel like that's really what I ought to do today. And then as you do that, you realize that there was an accident right up in front that uh, you were going to get stuck in for hours if you had not made that decision. Or you find out that uh, there's a train parked across the road where you need to drive and uh, uh, it would take you another half hour sitting in traffic to get home. And why did you just decide that time to make that turn and not go the usual way? Well, you know, we could say, well, that was good luck, but it's probably not good luck. You downloaded some information because your mind was on idle. It was open and it thought about something like, well, I wonder what the best way to go. Or 
I wonder if you know there'll be problems, or I'm just um, you know anything I might need to know, and down this information comes without really asking for it through your intellect, because we have all of these thoughts that we run through our minds that actually never get to our intellect. They're just there. <laughs> we find them when we try to meditate. We realize that there's these thoughts bombarding our mind all the time, and that, those thoughts are going on whether you're aware of them in your intellect or not. So that's probably where these downloads are coming from. It's not that you're living a secret life. It's just that there's a part of you that's processing, that's integrating, that's communicating, sending, receiving, and doing that all the time outside of your intellect. So you think that things outside of your intellect aren't really you, but they are. They're still, they're still a part of you because you're a multidimensional being. You operate in multiple dimensions simultaneously. Okay, the next question comes again from an MBT forum member, and it's about different kinds of love. I've got a question on love. Most people understand what love is. We love our friends, family, pets, and so on. My Big Toe talks about love in a broader sense, love that must extend to those we don't know. The broader my big toe definition of love is selflessness as selflessness can apply to any kind of love, yet it would seem impractical to attempt to love a stranger at the corner uh, on the corner in the same way or with the same intensity as I love my son, who I've cared for since birth. Should we be striving to achieve that kind of feeling towards those we don't know, or is it just a different kind of love? Are we different? Are there different kinds of love, or is that an idea based on cultural beliefs? Is the love I have for my wife different, really different from the love I have for my best friend? Should it be? Well, I can answer that last question. Should it be? Yes. The love you feel for your wife should be at least expressed differently than the love you feel for your best friend, I would think. Um, anyway, you know, love. It's all about other, and all the various kinds of love have that in common. That's the fundamental of love is that it's about other. And you said selfless, which is trying to say the same thing, that it's about somebody else other than you. If it's not about other, then it's not really love. So if it's about you, then it's most likely ego. So that's common among all the kinds of love that we feel. But you have different connections with people, different relationships with different people. The relationship you have with your son is different than the relationship you have with your wife, and they're both different than the relationship you have with your neighbor, and all of those are different than the relationship you have with your boss. You say, now, you should treat all of them with caring. You should treat all of them in a way that it's about, it's about them in the sense that you care about them. But because you have different relationships with them all, then that caring gets expressed in very different ways. You have different responsibilities to each one of those that are you know, quite different than to the others. So those responsibilities then channel how that caring is, is expressed and what that caring feels like. So these things should all be different. You don't it's it's not a good idea to think that the love you feel for your wife or your son is going to be exactly the way you should feel for everybody. You see, that's not the way it is. 
Love is about other. That's fundamental to all sorts of love. Now, you have different relationships. You express that caring in different ways. You have different responsibilities to those people within those relationships. And those are all unique as well. So the way you express, and you might say the way you feel that love is going to be different from person to person. And even if you had two people in the same relationship, you have two sons, you see. The way you feel about each one of them is going to be some different. You'll love them both. And it's not that you love one any more or any less than the other, but it's just different because you relate to them differently because they are different people. So different kinds of responsibilities, perhaps uh, different situations, and you will have a different feeling. So even when the situation is similar, like two sons, or if you're a bigamist, perhaps two wives, uh, you're going to treat each one uniquely. You're going to care for each one uniquely, even though you wouldn't say that your love was more or less, you know, for either one of them. It's just different way of expressing with different responsibilities and different connections for you and different experiences. So all your love, all your different people you know are all different. Now, what about the stranger? What kind of love is that? Well, that's a that's a kind of a broad-based general caring about that stranger. So you see that stranger not as just, you know, a, a bit player in your own drama, but somebody that's significant in their own right. They have their own drama, their own uh, lessons to learn, their own struggle in life. And because you also have your drama and your struggle, you can kind of have compassion for them because they're in the same boat you are, you're in the same boat they are. Everybody is in this, this place of struggling to grow up, struggling with their lessons, struggling to understand uh, you know, how to be, how to grow. We're all struggling that way. So we should have compassion for everybody. So we don't look at that person and say, well, how can I use that person? Well, they're just standing at a bus stop. I don't have any way to use them. Therefore, I really don't care about them because I only care about things that I can use. You see, that's a very self-centered attitude. What can I get out of that person? What can they give to me? That's all about you. But if you see that person and you think about them and you maybe have some compassion or you just accept them as, a, as another human being like you, struggling you know to get along and to make the best out of their life then that's caring about them it's not about you you see them as real as vital as important as significant okay as you see you know anyone else your wife and your sons are significant but so is this person just standing at the bus stop they're significant too but you don't have a relationship to them with them not a personal relationship and if you pass by that person because you're walking by that bus stop, a smile and a good morning or something like that would be nice. That's a nice thing to give. It doesn't take much trouble to give away a little smile and a, you know, and a, a, a you know, guten morgen. That uh, is an easy thing to do. So why not do that? Why not be nice and genial and polite and caring and if that person seems to just be kind of walking back and forth and looking confused you might say can i help you with something and they may say well i'm confused as to whether i catch this bus here or whether i should go someplace else and because you live in that neighborhood maybe you can straighten them out 
or given some help or dial it up on the on your cell phone and, and look at the bus schedule for them or something like that. So that's what I mean by caring and loving other people is that you just see them as deserving, caring, significant people. Now, sometimes other human beings aren't so nice. And you say, well, how can we love these ugly human beings that are rude and not nice to us? Well, if people are not nice, then you don't really want to spend a lot of time interacting with them. If you don't have to, or if it's not your job or whatever, you might say, wow, that person's really rude. And you may try to spark a friendship. You may try to see what burr is under their saddle. Is there anything you can do? But there may be nothing you can do. That may be just the way they are. They just have a you know, a really bad attitude, and uh, there's nothing you're going to do to help them fix that. You can't go around fixing everybody. See, that's not your job either. People have to fix themselves. Some people may be a way you can help them or fix them. Some people, there's just nothing you're going to do about it. You're not the person that's going to help. Maybe no person is going to help. Maybe they'll just have to figure it out on their own. But in any case, you still treat them with respect. They're still trouble, you know, they're, they're still struggling with their lessons. They're just struggling different than you. You don't look down at them. You don't think, oh, well, you know, what a, what a jerk, you know, it'd be a good thing if they got run over by a car, you know, take them out of a gene pool. They're not helpful. See, that's not the right thing to do, which you can say, oh, poor person, they are so miserable. They're so miserable, they're rude to everybody. Um, you know, I think I'll just going down the street and find somebody else to talk to because I just can't help that person. So that's still caring about them in the sense that you see them as a, as a, as a human being striving and struggling with whatever lessons they've got and with whatever it is they came in with. So that's really, you know, that's really the point. Everybody is, is valuable. Everybody has purpose. Everybody has lessons. And if you can help, help. If you can't, don't hurt. <laughs> don't make it worse. You know, if they're rude to you and then you get mad at them and hit them with a stick or something because they made you angry, now you're just making it worse. You're not helping them at all. You're making them even more angry and, and giving them a worse attitude than they had before. So at least with people like that, you don't make it any worse. But it doesn't mean you have to go up and hug everybody you see and kiss them and, you know, uh, you know share all your resources with them because that's what you do with your wife and your children. It's a different sort of thing. So that's what I mean by, you know, love everybody. And by you have to approach everybody from the sense of, of, uh, you know, what do you have to give? Some people, you just don't really have anything to give other than a smile and a nice word. And other people, the only thing you have to give is space. You can leave them alone to deal with their own consequences. That's that's the best thing you can give them. So you, you give what you can, what you think would be helpful to them, and you don't give people things that they can't use, they can't process. If you take somebody who's rude and you lecture them on rudeness, that's not going to help, you see. That's just about you. It makes you feel better because now you just told them off, you know, giving a little lecture on rudeness, it's all about you. That's not going to help them. They're not going to process that. They are the way they are, and, and it's not intellectual that they're that way. They're not being rude because they've decided that that is the best way to be. They're being rude because that's the way they feel. And uh, attaching to their intellect or lecturing them or giving them some information on why people shouldn't be rude isn't going to be helpful. Best to just give them their space. 
but you still have some compassion for them, even if you can't help. Okay. The next question comes again from an MBT forum member. And actually, I think you've answered most of it already with the last question, but uh, we'll go in it anyway. Um, Tom, when we interact with others, does it help to give a dose of tough love? Or is this just usually the ego talking? Telling someone how it is, to me, sometimes does feel like my ego leading Yet, if it is my truth and the truth to the best of my knowledge, then do I shut up, or let it be? Uh, let it be, or speak it like it is. Um, trying to get one's view across to how other people should be in this world is done best by just being the person you wish to see by actions. And um, but do words directed at the way it should be? still hold as an effective way, even if delivered as a direct approach. In my experiences, I stay quiet as not to cause too much waves, but sometimes I feel it would be best to just tell it how I see it, even if it ruffles some feathers, as some seem to be in a rut and will never get out. I suppose it's by a case-by-case -case process. Yes, it is. And... I think the, what this person's really um, struggling with is when do you step in and try to give people advice or explain things to them, and when do you just leave it alone and, and uh, let them figure it out for themselves? Well, there is no hard and fast rule. Sometimes the right thing to do is to just leave it alone. Sometimes the right thing to do is to step in and give an explanation or share some information or, you know, interact. So how do you know which is which? Well, you'll know that as you grow and you become love, as you evolve the quality of your consciousness, it'll be easier and easier to understand where other people are coming from. You will feel their feelings. You, you will know where, they're, where they are. And you can, if you don't know exactly, you can ask a question or two or just bring up a subject or two and you'll get a sense, a very good sense, because you're getting information directly out of their consciousness. You're understanding their feelings. You're seeing their point of view. Now, you can't do that if you're very self-centered. You don't see anybody's point of view but your own. But as you grow up and become less and less self-centered, it's easier and easier to see other people's viewpoints, to understand how other people are thinking and feeling. And then what you do or don't do is determined by what you think will be the most help for that person. So if you think that they're really ready to take the next step, they just lack information. They don't really understand that they've got choice C and D besides choice A and B. And all you have to do is explain that. They get it because they're really ready to go. Well, then what you need to do is give them information. Explain to them about C and D as other choices, but do it in a way that is helpful. You don't start off saying, well, I know what your problem is. You know, here's what you need to do. You know, that's those are what we call fighting words. That gets people back up right away when you approach it like that. You you approach it in a way that is about them. Okay, It's not about you are the one that knows and you're going to help them out. That's your ego talking. It's you've got information they can use, so you give that to them in a, in a way that they can best 
take it in and process it. Well, sometimes that approaches everything. If you present it in this way, they'll get their back up and won't touch it. If you give it to them in a different way, they'll accept it, process it, and thank you very much. And it all has to do with whether or not you trigger their ego in the process of giving them the information. Well, then you have to understand them, how they think, how they feel, and present information to them in a way that they can use it, not in a way that they can't use it. So if you give it to them in a way that triggers their own ego, then you're giving it to them in a way they can't use it. You can give them in a way that they can accept it that's better. So what I'm saying is that as you evolve, you will find that easier and easier to know when you should tell people something and give them information and when you should just not necessarily tell them anything, but instead maybe it's just a hug or a smile or something like that is about all that you can give them, you see, or maybe wish them well or uh, commiserate with their, with their uh, problem. Maybe that's all you can do. Maybe all you can do is just listen. Just listen to them talk and don't tell them anything. Just give them a chance to talk because as they talk, they're sorting things out in their own mind. Maybe that's what you can do. Now, if you are self-centered, you have no idea what other people are thinking. You have no idea where they're coming from. You don't really appreciate their feelings. So you tend to do the wrong thing at the wrong time more often. And that creates trouble in your relationships. People who are very self-centered have usually very troubled relationships. As you do grow up and you do understand people and you do care about others, then you can tell people things just as much as they can find useful. So let's say you asked me a question and I got the sense that I can tell you this much about the question and you can take that and think about it and deal with it and act on it. But if I tell you too much, it'll overwhelm you. It'll back you up. And you'll go, uh, you know, back off. I can't, you know, I can't handle all of that. I don't like where that's going because you'll jump to a conclusion that's not correct and other than, well, then I don't tell you that much. So it's not like you always tell everybody everything you know about a subject. You tell them what you think they can use that'll be useful to them. You see? And that's the way you deal with all your relationships. You have a relationship and you have to think about that other person. Because now it's not about you, it's about them, right? You've grown up. It's about them. What can you do to help them? What can you tell them? And what should you not tell them? You know, that'll help them grow up. And how should you tell it to them? And should it be direct or should it be very indirect? Um, that depends on them. Like you said, it's an individual case. So the, the thing here is how do you pick? How do you choose? How do you know? what you can tell people and how you should tell them so that it does the most good and does the least harm. Well, the way you do that is grow up yourself. When you grow up yourself, then all that becomes more and more obvious. You don't have, you're not confused by it. You kind of intuitively know what you need to say to somebody, what you don't need to say to somebody and when you just need to listen and not say anything. So it's a matter of getting in tune with that other person that you care about. So that's kind of the way, that's kind of the answer to that question. You just grow up yourself and that problem will solve itself.